Well, good evening to you all. It's a pleasure and an honour to welcome David Miliband here this evening to speak on the theme of green peace, two words, Europe, energy and the global order. David speaks tonight at the LSE on the invitation of the Ralph Miliband programme and this makes this occasion particularly special, if not remarkable. The Miliband programme honours the memory of David's father, Ralph who taught at the LSE from 1949 to 1972. The programme is funded through a generous bequest of a former LSE PhD student who was inspired by Ralph's critical vision. Ralph elaborated this vision throughout his working life in phases, defending Marxism, building upon Marxism, challenging Marxism, and then rethinking aspects of the socialist project. He pursued this project in dialogue with his wife, Marion Kozak, who I'm delighted is here this evening, as she so often is for the Ralph Miliband lectures. And he also did so in conversation with two lads, two boys, David and Ed, who happened to grow up to become cabinet ministers. Marion, where, where are you sitting, Marion? Hands up, wherever you are. I mean, it's, it's one thing to have one cabinet minister in the family, it's, it's quite another to have uh, two. So we all wonder what you fed them or whether they're... I was wondering, looking at children's bookshelves uh, yesterday night, whether they're Winnie the Pooh stories that I missed, like Winnie the Pooh and the Cabinet Minister, or Winnie the, Pooh, <laughs> Winnie the Pooh and the Commonwealth. But it doesn't seem to be part of the series. But clearly something happened in this remarkable family to propel the two sons into a leading political roles. Born on the 15th of July, 1965... David was educated at Haverstock Comprehensive School here in London. He then went to Oxford, graduating with a first-class degree in philosophy, politics, and economics. That was followed by a trip to study at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, where he completed a master's degree as a Kennedy Scholar. And he's married to the distinguished violinist, Louise Shackleton, and they also have two boys. I fear for those boys. I hope not. I hope you put away those Winnie the Pooh stories. David was head of the Prime Minister's Policy Unit from 1997 to 2004. Since 2001, he's been MP for South Shields. He entered the Cabinet in May 2005. The rise continues. He became Secretary of State at the Department of Food, Environment and Rural Affairs in May 2006. And he was appointed Secretary of State for the Foreign and Commonwealth Affairs in June 2007. This at a time, of course, when Tony Blair retired as Prime Minister and Gordon Brown took the helm. Labour's foreign policy record under Tony Blair is, of course, controversial. I think it's fair to say that. There are many positives. There were many positives on global development issues, the support of UN reform, a new deal for Africa, among many other significant policies. Against this, of course, there was controversy surrounding the war in Iraq, the war on terror, which raised many serious questions for many in many countries about Labour's foreign policies and allegiances. Despite this legacy, the UK still is, of course, a significant player in international politics. The challenge and opportunity facing a post-Blair government, I believe, is to jettison some of the worst features of past policy, policy, build on the substantive achievements of the last decade, and there are many, and to develop new thinking and progressive policy responses to meet the international policy challenges in the years ahead. And here's the point I want to get to. There is no better person, in my judgment, place to respond to this challenge in the government today than David Miliband. He will speak 
for 40, 45 minutes. There will then be questions. But please now join me in giving him a very warm LSE welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, uh, David, uh, for your fantastic leadership of the uh, Miliband program at the uh, LSE. Uh, and thank you for the invitation to speak uh, tonight in this series on uh, energy and the global order. Uh, it is genuinely a, a, an honor to be speaking at the LSE, to be speaking in the old uh, theater, which has been the scene of so many uh, debates uh, over the years. Uh, to do so in a lecture series named after my father's contribution to the school uh, is uh, poignant uh, and a little ironic, I think. Uh, poignant uh, because he's not here to uh, listen and disagree with what I – to agree as well as disagree with what I say, uh, but he's not here to listen to it. Uh, but uh, ironic because his view of the school was a mixture of fondness for the people and frustration with the institution. Uh, his, uh, his view of the Labour Party was also a mixture, uh, not of fondness and frustration, but frustration and despair. <laughs> so the uh, idea that his son would be speaking uh, at the LSE as a Labour Foreign Secretary I think would have summoned pride and prejudice in equal measure as he came to uh, listen. Uh, my dad always described himself as a socialist, but also, importantly, as a teacher. And when people tell me, as they still do, that his books made a huge difference to the way they think about their own lives and think about the world, it gives me an enormous sense of pride and it reminds me that books are a much more enduring contribution than speeches. Uh, but people also tell me that they remember his classes at the LSE. And uh, they remember that he was a teacher determined to engage the minds of his students. Perhaps surprisingly for someone of strong, not to say very strong, political uh, views, he went out of his way to talk up and discuss alternatives to his own uh, point of view. And it's that spirit of openness and inquiry that I think explains the bequest of funds, the very, very generous bequest of funds uh, that you uh, referred to. Uh, and it uh, funds today uh, books, scholarships, and this lecture series uh, in my dad's name. And David, you have done a brilliant job in giving leadership to this uh, program and the fact that there should now be next year's series already in the planning, I think, on sustainability and social justice or social justice and sustainability, uh, I think speaks well uh, not just to the strength of the program, but actually to the links with this year's uh, topics. I just want to say a word about the origins of the program, because I think they're important. It's funded, as you say, by a bequest from an LSE student. And the donor never wanted to be named, but he wasn't actually a student of my dad's. He was someone who my dad helped with his thesis. And in a letter that he uh, sent to the LSE um, hierarchy in trying to set up this program, he, he said something uh, interesting, which I think is worth relating. He said... I'm not a socialist. I try to be open-minded and non-partisan. Ralph and I were not always in agreement about specific ends. That's an understatement. That is unimportant. What counts is his willingness and ability to avoid doctrines and socio-political traps. His work and spirit 
should not become a mausoleum for dead thoughts like the various churches and political parties that strew the intellectual landscape. It's a good thing that doesn't have any relevance to today's uh, political uh, situation, but nonetheless, as a commentary on uh, the spirit of inquiry that should uh, motivate uh, the LSE, I think it's uh, nice. But he also said he wanted to clarify his wishes, which were, quote, to establish a living, breathing adjunct to the LSE traditions of the Webbs, R.H. Tawney, Harold Lasky, and all of us who came to the LSE in their spirit, which I think is a very nice historical uh, sense of this. Uh, my dad, as you said, spent nearly 30 years of his life associated with the LSE. He came here a year or so after arriving in uh, the UK in 1940 as a refugee, fresh from learning English and completing his matriculation. Uh, the LSE was in Cambridge for the first year. He then went into the Royal Navy. When he was demobbed, he came to Houghton Street uh, to complete his studies and then joined the faculty. And I hope you'll allow me, given that um, I'm currently the Foreign Secretary, that I responsible for 16,000 diplomats around the world. If you'll allow me to quote, I don't know if this is the first time in uh, this series, to quote from the LSE student newspaper, The Beaver. Uh, this is what The Beaver said in 1958. And remember, I'm now responsible for 16,000 diplomats. It says, Dr. Miliband is a very popular lecturer at the school. He takes every opportunity to meet his students and encourages them to discuss controversial topics with him. Witty and humorous, he is quick at grasping anticipating questions and talking with him makes one wonder whether the man across the table is some sort of dignitary at the foreign office. <laughs> now, in all my thoughts about my dad's potential choices of career, a diplomat at the foreign office is not really where I would have seen him spreading his wings. But nonetheless, that does bring me rather neatly to today's uh, subject. Other speakers have come from the world of business, economics, and academia, but I'm a politician, and I want to address the politics of energy and the global order, the politics of energy and the global order. Since I'm Foreign Secretary, I want to talk about the international politics of the issues that have dominated this series. If any of you want to skip the lecture and know the conclusion of my argument, and I confess to using that tactic as a student uh, some years ago, uh, the argument is as follows. We face a real resource crunch with spiraling energy and food prices as well as water shortages. Second, its origins are carbon dependence. Third, its consequences are not just economic and environmental, but geopolitical. Fourth, we risk a scramble for resources with each nation pitted against the other. Fifth, the alternative is a transition from a global economy dependent on oil and gas to a low-carbon economy with a diverse mix of energy sources and suppliers. And sixth and finally, the best way to set a new global course, in fact, the only real means at the disposal of Britain is through leadership from the European Union, the largest single market in the world with the clout to set global standards. So that's the terrain that I want to try and cover uh, in the next uh, half hour or so. I want to start with what I have seen over the last nine months as Foreign Secretary. Two trends are visible, and the truth is that they are rubbing up against each other. The first trend is a world built in reaction to the disastrous consequences of balance of power politics in the first half of the 20th century. It's a world where national interest is pursued through international cooperation. 
It recognizes that flows of people, money, and products are making, are making countries' prosperity and security more intertwined than ever before. It accepts absolutely critically that to address the shared threats we face, from financial instability to nuclear proliferation to climate change, we need to work together through shared rules and institutions, from the EU to NATO, the WTO, and the UN. But that trend, that view, that philosophy even, is challenged by a second one. And that second trend is a world where national interest is still pursued through competitive rivalry. Notions of interdependence and multilateral cooperation are dismissed as a passing fad. International relations is a zero-sum game where nations compete for power, not collaborate to meet shared risks. And from trade to nuclear proliferation, the danger of this approach is more insecurity. I want to emphasize one thing really importantly. These are not competing visions of, on the one hand, an international interest, and on the other hand, a national interest. They're two different visions of how national interest is pursued in a world of interdependence, which has been an important feature of this series. Now, for much of the last decade, we've spoken, perhaps in a glib way, as though cooperation, the first course, will win out over competition. We've tended to see globalization as somehow an inevitable or ineluctable force sweeping all before it. But the truth is that the globalization of the 21st century is as fragile as the globalization of the 19th century, which famously ended on the streets of Sarajevo in 1914. Then as now, there are big gains from globalization but they're often invisible. And I believe that the uh, then as now, the gains are often invisible, but the pain is often very, very visible indeed, and it's often short term. And what's interesting about this lecture series is that the resource crunch that we face is the fulcrum on which this all turns. If we fail to address the problems of scarcity and high prices in respect of fuel, food, and water, then the traditional paradigm of balance of power politics threatens to return with a vengeance. But if we succeed in finding new and innovative ways to meet the growing demand for natural resources, then the newer paradigm of cooperation and collaboration can win out. And that's really what I want to go through this evening. Let me start with what's driving the resource crunch, because I think it's important to be clear. First, a richer, more crowded world is propelling a surge in demand for natural resources the global population going up to 9 billion by 2050, an increase in the size of the global population equal to the total global population in 1950. As Michael Clare pointed out in his lecture in this series, the world is facing the most rapid and largest buildup in the demand for resources in modern history. And really interesting, all of the rise in demand is coming from developing economies, so that by 2025, the global south will have a higher demand for energy than the North. India, China, other developing countries enjoying rapid economic growth. Uh, they are driving more cars. They're consuming more electricity. 20,000 new vehicles every day on the roads of China. Two additional coal-fired power stations each week. Second, this growth in energy demand is happening at a time when the supplies of cheap oil and gas are dwindling. They're becoming far more costly to extract. Suppliers concentrated in countries whose governments directly control their hydrocarbon industries and are developing them more slowly than, develop, than developing countries might want. Some of them might be prepared to use their natural resources as instruments of foreign policy. 
And as a result of global demand, we're seeing investment in alternatives to oil and gas. Some of them are good when it comes to climate change, which I will come back to. Nuclear, renewables. But others are far worse, such as use of coal and oil sands. And over the next decade, the most likely effect of growing insecurity of oil and gas is a dash for coal, a resource that is relatively cheap, abundant in many countries, but far worse for carbon emissions. So, growing demand, difficulty of supply. Third, and not often linked, an extraordinary period of food price inflation. Rice hit $1,000 a tonne for the first time last week. The UN Food and Agriculture Organization say food prices rose 57% in the year to March 2008. There have been protests at food price rises in Egypt, Morocco, Mauritania, Ethiopia, Indonesia. In Haiti, the prime minister was dismissed. The causes are manifold. Global demand has surged, but supply has not kept pace. That's the population part of the equation. Higher energy prices, which I've just been talking about, have pushed up the costs of fertilizers and irrigation and transport, making them unaffordable for many farmers in developing countries. Adverse weather conditions, such as the 10-year drought in Australia, are limiting the land available for food production. Biofuels, not necessarily bad in themselves, but sometimes sponsored without proper concern for sustainability, have prompted the cultivation of fuel crops where food crops might otherwise have been grown. Meanwhile, trade barriers, protectionism, subsidies in the developed world make it harder and harder for poor people in developing countries to get the capital investment that allows them to produce the higher quantities that they are capable of. That's why the World Bank estimates that we face a, f a food crunch as well as a fuel crunch. And it's why Gordon Brown has written to the Japanese Prime Minister as chair of the GA proposing an international strategy to address both the immediate hardship and the medium-term challenges. There's a fourth aspect of this that I think is not given proper attention, including by me. 500 million people live in countries chronically short of water. By 2050, this figure is expected to rise to 4 billion. In northern China, a sinking water table means wells need to be dug much deeper and more pumping capacity installed. A falling water table and lack of power to run pumps has led to serious shortfall of drinking water in Dhaka, the capital of Bangladesh. Irrigation is becoming more difficult. So, those four factors together bring economic and social consequences, but they also bring geopolitical consequences, which have to be of concern to foreign ministers. The main energy consumers, in particular the US and China, face the prospect of competing for limited resources. And there's already a scramble in Africa, the fastest growing source of new oil in the world. Second, the main production sites as a source of can become source of rising tensions, whether dormant border disputes in the Gulf or countries pushing claims to their share of what could be a quarter of the world's undiscovered oil and gas in the Arctic. About a third of the world's civil wars are currently in oil-producing states, up from about a fifth in 1992, and that in a world where there are fewer wars going on now than any time in the last 50 years. Third, the main transit routes, another geopolitical aspect of this, become more important to energy security. Turkey playing a key role in bringing oil and gas from both the Middle East and Central Asia into Europe. Shipping routes across the Caspian and Black Seas, increasingly central to European energy security. And two-thirds of Asia's oil consumption, depending on free passage through the Straits of Malacca between Indonesia and Malaysia, Malaysia 
which at its most narrow point is 2.8 kilometers wide. All the while, economic power is shifting to oil and gas-rich states and, it has to be said, the elites within them. The vast majority of oil and gas in the world is now supplied by state-owned companies. The revenues accruing from high energy prices are then used to buy up foreign assets. And internally, as Thomas Friedman has argued, soaring oil prices strengthen anti-democratic regimes. Resource-rich regimes have less incentive to enter into democratic bargains with their own people. You remember the phrase, no taxation without representation. It's a meaningless phrase when fuel revenues negate the need for taxation at all. Now, if we are to avoid these consequences, we need to address the causes of the resource crunch. And this is the absolute pivot of my argument tonight. Dependence on scarce and vulnerable supplies of hydrocarbons is forcing up energy prices. Higher energy prices and pressure on land is forcing up food prices. Climate change then exacerbates water shortages and the availability of agricultural land in some parts of the world. And it's really important to understand why this isn't just a repeat of the 1973 oil crisis all over again. People did warn of the danger of oil dependence after the 1973 oil crisis. But global warming changes the equation in an absolutely fundamental way. Because if climate change didn't exist, the answer, whether in 1973 or 2008, would be more straightforward. We'd switch to coal and possibly oil sands for cheaper energy and greater security of supply. But it's our hydrocarbon dependence, at least when the carbon is emitted into the atmosphere, that exacerbates the problems I've already described. It exposes us to both energy and climate insecurity. And that's why the shift from high carbon dependence to low carbon is so important whether you care about energy security with its economic, social, and geopolitical aspects, or you care about climate change, or you care about both. The question is, what do we do? I think what's interesting about this area of policy is that actually the technology is not the difficult thing. There is a clear pathway to a low-carbon economy that would reduce our carbon footprint and make our energy system more resilient. That is the good news. But for each of the technological challenges I'm going to describe, there is a major political challenge too. How to share the financial burdens of a transition from carbon dependence to carbon independence. And above all, how to share it between rich and poor, both within countries and between countries. And as I'll say at the end, that's why energy security and climate change are not just environmental issues, they're actually political issues. What are the four things that, that would make the biggest difference in respect of both uh, of this shift to low carbon? First, remarkably, energy efficiency, which sounds like a very uninteresting subject until you learn that if the US, China, India, and Russia had the same energy efficiency as Japan, world energy consumption would be cut by 20%. Not 2%, 20%. Second, we need to address energy storage as well as new energy production and infrastructure. Following the oil price shock in the 1970s, the International Energy Agency helped to develop a system of oil storage to insulate the global economy from short-term oil shocks. It's right that we ask questions about how we respond to shocks in the gas sector, how we improve gas storage, how we get more investment in interconnections between countries, and how we create the right framework 
to ensure new pipelines are built to reduce dependency. Third, we need to move to low-carbon electricity generation. If we can develop near-zero emission electricity, the UK would cut its emissions by fully one-third. Renewables and nuclear have an important part to play, as I said earlier. But to meet the demand for more energy in the medium term, the world will continue to rely on fossil fuels, in, particularly, in particular coal. That's why urgent investment in carbon capture and storage, using coal but ensuring that the emissions do not go into the atmosphere, is indispensable. The technology actually exists but needs to be applied at scale. The EU has made a commitment of up to 12 demonstration projects by 2015. The UK is funding a competition to build the, world's, to build the UK's first coal-fired carbon capture and storage power station in the UK. And we need similar investment right across Europe. Fourth and finally, a post-oil transport system need not be a mirage. Alison King, the Vice Chancellor of Aston University, set out in a report last year the initial steps that will be through hybrid cars and plug-in hybrids combining electric and petrol engines. Biofuels, as long as they are produced sustainably, can also play their part, not least in a country like this where the common agricultural policy means that land is set aside and not used at all. In the longer term, fully electric and hydrogen cars are realistic options. Now, if that's the technological prospect, what is the political blockage? I think it comes down to this. Who moves first and how do they move? And this is where the UK's position in the European Union becomes absolutely critical. We are 2% of annual global man-made emissions. Europe contributes 14%. We account in the UK for 4.5% of global trade in goods and services. Europe is almost 40%. So it's not just a market, the European Union, it's a market maker. And if you're a market maker, you drive technological innovation. I think there's something really interesting about how the European Union could actually come full circle. If you think about the success that has been achieved in securing peace and prosperity across Western and Eastern Europe in the last 40 years, Europe has a lot to claim credit for, but it needs a new raison d'etre. It can't rely on that project to keep it motoring forward. Ironically, the answer is actually to go back to the future. What did the European Union start as? It began with cooperation on coal and steel as a way of preventing conflict and instability. Coal and steel were the critical resources at the time needed to wage war. A common market was seen as a preventative step. Today, Europe has in its power to pitch against an energy scramble leading to conflict not within its borders, which was the founding driver in, 19, in the 1950s, but conflict beyond its borders. And I don't know how many of you are here from Michael Clare's lecture, American academic. He didn't mention Europe in his uh, lecture, but someone asked him a, a question uh, about it. And it was interesting that his answer, which was a good one, he said Europe should up its game in relation to Russia. That answer gave no hint of Europe's global role. It saw Europe's activities as only being important for what goes on within the European Union. In fact, Europe's goal should be to drive not just low-carbon transition in Europe, but actually beyond, using regulation markets and negotiating positions that set a global benchmark. And I want to describe five ways in which the European Union can become a global leader in this drive to low carbon. First, the world needs a global carbon market 
to enable transfers from rich to poor countries so that they can help leapfrog straight, from low, straight to low-carbon energy. The European Union Emissions Trading Scheme, which allows companies to buy some of their energy reduction in the developing world by investing in low-carbon energy product, projects, is the foundation for this. We need to ensure its long-term future, extend the scheme to cover more sectors of the economy, ensure caps are set centrally, as the European Commission have proposed, and link the EU emissions trading scheme to carbon markets now emerging in other countries, notably the US, Canada, and New Zealand. California would be the fourth largest economy in the world if it was a country, and it wants to set up a carbon market linked to the European Union. Second, the world needs to accelerate global investment in green technology. And the EU has, I think, the critical mass to do this. EU standards and regulations can mobilize capital investment in new vehicles, power stations, and appliances, bringing down the cost of deploying low-carbon technology across the world. And it's important to understand why a carbon market with a carbon price, necessary though it is, is not sufficient. In 1981, it was widely assumed that oil prices would continue to rise. Instead, prices dropped steadily and investment in alternative energy sources tailed off. However high the carbon price at any one time, uncertainty deters investment. That's why alongside emissions trading, you need long-term targeted regulation. That means following through on the European Commission's commitment to reduce the emissions from power stations. It means setting ambitious long-term regulations for the car sector. And it means regulation as in the Japanese top runner program where minimum standards are ratcheted up year by year by year to the level of the greenest product, products every few years. And interestingly enough, that's what's happening in the British housing sector from now until 2016. Third, I believe the world needs open global markets in agriculture and increased global investment in low-carbon R&D. The developed world's agricultural policies, developed world's agricultural policies, currently cost developing countries about £17 billion each year, five times the amount of overseas development assistance spent on agriculture. The EU budget and the common agricultural policy must be defined for a new purpose. Because the truth is that despite reform, the EU budget carries more baggage from the past than innovation for the future. The wrong response is to hunker down, reiterating arguments from the 1950s and 1960s about food security, to justify the common agricultural policy as a model for the future. Instead, we need continued liberalization of agriculture, allowing market forces and the price mechanism to play a greater role globally in gradually matching supply and demand and avoiding sudden dramatic shortages and wrenching adjustments. As part of that, we need to ensure that the EU budget review, which will set the financial perspective from 2013 to 2020, aligns spending to priorities and ensures spending is only used as a policy tool when it's the best tool to use. And a greener EU budget is an important part of that. Fourth, the world needs genuine dialogue between producers and consumers. We need to use the platform provided by the treaty signed in Lisbon, the new European Reform Treaty, to create a single dialogue between the EU and our key energy suppliers. And what's interesting is that when you stop thinking about the EU as being dependent on others' supplies and start thinking about the EU as a market for others' supplies, you get into geopolitics very, very quickly indeed. Energy security is one of the most compelling arguments for Turkish accession to the European Union and demonstrates why it's so important to drive this process forward. 
The EU-Russia dialogue is critical to energy security too. We're stronger if the EU speaks with one voice and engages multilaterally rather than bilaterally 27 times. And the EU-China dialogue is critical to moving to a low-carbon economy, a low-carbon alliance, in fact, between the world's fastest-growing economy and its biggest market. The fifth way in which the European Union can shape the global context deserves a lecture of its own. It's how the world gets a global deal on climate change for the period after 2012. And I think the EU has a critical role to, do, to play in that. Its commitment to cut by 20% and 30% if others do as well, its emissions by 2020 on 1990 levels is the right way to start. But as I say, that needs a lecture of its own. So carbon dependence is the root of the resource crunch problem. Low carbon is the heart of the answer, not just to climate change, but also to energy security. And it's the best route for protecting and promoting a liberal international order, which has been the basis of our peace and security for the last 60 years. I focused, David, in my speech today on the geopolitical impact of our continued dependence on hydrocarbons and the challenges we face in forging an alternative path. But I've called my speech Green and Peace, Energy, Europe and the Global Order because I believe that the transition to low carbon promises not just environmental and economic dividends but significant geopolitical advantages as well. A world in which we seek succeed in building low-carbon economies and curbing greenhouse gas emissions is a world in which power and resource wealth is dispersed. It's a world in which we mitigate the worst effects of climate change and work together through shared rules and institutions to prevent or manage water and food shortages peacefully and minimize the conflict and mass migration that they are now predicting. It is, in short, a world of order where shared rules are the basis for positive interdependence and for our continued stability and prosperity. Now, what's interesting is that no sane person could be opposed to this, but it is actually the subject of ferocious political debate. And the reason is that the ends are less consensual, I beg your pardon, that the means are less consensual than the ends. The shift to low carbon represents a wrenching transition in political economy, in notions of social justice, and in issues of international governments. And this is where I conclude. The issues under discussion are not just environmental. They are political. They challenge ideas of national sovereignty. They challenge attachments to free markets, since carbon dependence is the greatest, world's greatest market failure. It challenges distrust of collective action. And it challenges us to take inequality seriously, or there will be no global deal. I began tonight by talking about two paradigms within foreign policy. The risk that competitive rivalry between nations over resources will undermine or overwhelm cooperation to address shared threats. I want to end with two paradigms, not of foreign policy, but of progressive politics. The social democratic tradition and the liberal tradition, which in this country are both grouped on the progressive side of politics. Both of these traditions have been championed at the LSE. Both had more adherence than my father's commitment to Marxism. We will only overcome the resource crunch, interestingly, if we draw heavily on each of the social democratic and the liberal traditions. The social democratic belief in the role of the state in planning and regulation, the radical liberal belief 
in the need to mobilize markets and social, move, and social movements for progressive public interest. That is why, that is what the resource crunch enjoins us to do. It's a huge project, but one which requires a spirit of social progress and intellectual inquiry with which I started my lecture and which I think defines the best of the LSE. Thank you very much indeed. I think it's very rare to hear politicians combine three things, analytical rigor, openness to diversity of ideas and ideas from all quarters, as it were, and a passion for change. And I think it's this combination that you have brought to the table this evening and that hopefully will take you a long way. <laughs> questions. I'm going to take questions in clusters of um, three, and there are already a lot of people with their hands up. They are roaming mics. Thank you. And let's wear the mics. We'll start with a few down here. Yes, the gentleman with the blue tie on in the middle. Thank you very much. I'm, I'm sorry, but I have to say this. I mean, taking questions in classes of three or four hours is uh, Mr. Brown's tradition, right? He, it's my tradition, that, so well, let's, he, let's get to the question. He normally does it so that he doesn't answer any of them. But uh, anyway... Um, I, I, I noticed that um, the word peace is in the title of this lecture, so if I might ask you a question about uh, peace in the Labour Party. Um, and it's, you'll be pleased to know a straight yes or no question. Do you categorically rule out standing for the Labour leadership before the general election? <laughs> yes or no? Well, it's a good, I like short questions, and questions do take, should take the form of an, potentially an answer that is yes or no. So yeah, it's a model question, but it's a provocative one. No. Mary Caldo over there. Um, well, thank you for a great lecture and a wonderful project. I think the idea of Europe espousing a green peace is really great. But I have two questions about the obstacles, <laughs> or one question about two obstacles. One obstacle is domestic politics. What we've seen over the last week is Boris not introducing a 25%, the 25% extra congestion charge and concerns about keeping fuel taxes high and Hillary Clinton offering a fuel tax break. You know, do domestic politics make it really difficult to go to a low-carbon economy? And second, the, the second is about European politics. Can we get people, states together on this agenda when they're so divided on security issues, whether it's the Middle East, Iraq, Palestine, or whether it's something like mem membership in the UN Security Council? And the third question up there with the gentleman with the microphone. Thanks very much. Uh, during your uh, speech tonight, you've been talking a lot about what seem to be vital interests uh, to the United Kingdom. And I would just be curious to hear how you would list the top three, four, or five like, vital security interests or vital interests of the UK, and let's say starting with the most important and then going down from there. Good. Um, I'm actually off to do Paxman after this, so you've given me a, a sort of uh, 
early run, really. Uh, uh, categorically, yes, I'm supporting Gordon Brown. I'm not challenging Gordon Brown. So if Jeremy's uh, watching, I hope that makes, means that we can have a discussion about energy and climate change uh, tonight. Uh, secondly, um, domestic politics. I'll tell you what's interesting about this. I think that people want to know that government and business are pulling their weight if they're going to pull their weight as well. And what I've been describing tonight is how government can show leadership and how business can be driven for innovation. And I actually think that to do with the uh, um, London charge, I mean, I think, I don't know, I haven't uh, spoken to Ken Livingston about this, but I think he'd say he'd actually promised not to increase the congestion charge. And so there was an issue there of what he'd promised and what he did, which I think was bigger than the question of the actual details of the, of the charge. I think that's my reading of the politics in, uh, in London about it. In terms of the UK's vital security interests, I mean, we've just been through a process in the Foreign Office uh, trying to think hard about uh, for a country which for the first time probably in its history <coughs> faces no threat to its... Where, where is the guy? Yeah. Which faces no threat to its territorial integrity. How does it define its security interests? And we've, uh, we've put four issues as being, or four priorities as being absolutely key. Uh, the first is um, the risk of terrorism and uh, weapons of mass destruction, which uh, proliferation of weapons of mass destruction. Uh, the priority there is, frankly, uh, the uh, Afghan-Pakistan border. 70% of our terrorism is linked back to Pakistan in one way or another. Uh, second issue that we've uh, raised is um, preventing and reducing conflict. The, the, the highlight there, or the low light in a way, or the key issue there is, I think, for Europeans, the situation in the Western Balkans, where we've got 16,000 NATO troops showing that you sometimes need hard power to keep the space for diplomatic uh, solutions. A third area is in the uh, low-carbon development, tackling inequality uh, domain, and I've been talking about that tonight. The fourth is a, perhaps a surprising to people. <coughs> Britain's security is in part threatened by the weakness of international institutions, not their strength. And so when it comes to the IAEA or the World Trade Organization or the UN, they need reform to make sure that they're actually able to deliver the sort of security we need for the modern world. See, I answered all three questions. There you go. Um, we'll take three more. Um, this, yeah. I'm afraid the selection from here is pretty random. I just try to spread the questions around. Yes. question about Iran's um, nuclear energy issue. Um, I understand this uh, approach of the uh, carrot and stick is not um, obviously working that much because the carrot, the packages that you uh, proposed to the Iranian government, the, 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 your Iranian counterpart said that uh, they would refuse any sort of proposition which uh, in return requires um, suspension of enrichment. And the stake, which is the Security Council sanctions, that the Iranian president says that this is not working as well and we're doing business as usual. I wanted to know how long this approach will, you will carry on with this approach. Is it a matter of weeks, months, years? Thank you. Yes. No, straight down. 
Hi, Justin, a guest, a PhD student. I'm up here. Hi, hi. Um, I think that you made a good point about uh, how oil is often nationalized in a lot of countries, but the use of carbon uh, and sometimes the provision of it is actually privatized. So I was wondering, do you see the private industries that often are involved in the production and consumption of the uh, elements that you're talking about, do you see them as rational actors who simply need to be incentivized to work inside this kind of program, or do you see them as partners that need to be or held responsible in a certain way? And if so, how do we hold their feet to the fire under this kind of plan? Mm -hmm. I mean, on, um, I'm slightly, I may be slightly out of date, but I think that um, aviation emissions are about 4% of uh, UK emissions, or maybe 6%, but they're growing fast at about 6% a year. Um, I, I think that uh, the, the key is to make sure that there are proper principles applied of um, the, the recognition of the environmental cost across the range of the economy. Now, the issue you raised, the issue of uh, aviation taxation, that's actually taken care of or, or blocked off by the um, Chicago Convention of 1944, which is the governing uh, basis of uh, international aviation. That's why the EU can't do anything. But what the EU can do is extend the emissions trading scheme that I talked about to include aviation, which is committed uh, to doing. And I think that is an important thing to do. And in the end, the way I think about this actually is that if you just go sector by sector trying to say we want X percent reduction in this sector and Y percent in that sector, you're actually missing a trick. The key thing is to say across society, let's take Britain as a country, we've got to get our emissions down. And it frankly doesn't matter how we get them down, whether we get them from building standards or from car efficiency or from energy efficiency. And that's why I talk about government, business, and individuals all having a role. And it seems to me that you, you can't centrally plan the reduction. What you can do is mandate the level of the reduction and then ensure that you have the right systems. And this comes to the second, the third question. You have the right systems, both of incentives and partnerships, which is what Mel uh, asked about. Um, but I think that is the right way to do it. So I don't think you just take one... You don't want to get in a position where you're saying one sector has to have this much reduction, another sector has to have this much reduction, because you end up in a sort of Soviet tractor production system. What you want to be clear about is that between now and 2050, we need at least a 60% reduction in uh, carbon emissions on 1990 levels. Um, you've then got to be clear about the budgetary periods up to that. But frankly, it doesn't matter what, what, what the balance is. Let me ask the third question, and I'll come back to the first one. I mean... You said, should they, should they be incentives or should they be partners? Should they be incentives or ration, for, for people like rational, should they be partners? I think they should be rational partners. Uh, I hope that's not as too political an answer. But essentially, I think if it's government's responsibility to set the regulatory framework, and what business wants to know is what's the long-term regulatory uh, framework within which it's going to be offering, uh, operating. So for house builders, they want to know what energy efficiency standards they're going to need. And they need to know them over the long term because you're building houses for the long term. Ditto in respect of cars, you need to know it for the long term. And all of my experience is, if you're clear and credible about your regulatory framework, then business will actually innovate, innovate like crazy and probably compete to be the first to get to the standard, be it environmental or other, and actually get you there quicker. Um, I mean, on Iran, I think that, um, and I think you, you were sort of saying it then, how long will it take? And I, what I would say is the choice is for Iran, really. I mean, the Middle East has got enough problems without a nuclear arms race in the Middle East. And that is what is at stake here. And I think we've been right to say that we take our non-proliferation responsibilities as permanent members of the Security Council extremely seriously. But we also know that um, 
Iran has rights as well as responsibilities. And the problem is that when it's not fulfilling its responsibilities, it can't be expected just to claim its rights. And so we, we met on, we made an offer in 2006, the um, P5 plus one, the five permanent members of the Security Council plus Germany. Um, we made an offer in 2006. We met in London, the, the six foreign ministers on uh, Friday. And uh, as I announced after the meeting, we are uh, um, we're, we're re-engaging with the Iranian uh, government because the UN Security Council has just passed its fourth resolution on this issue. And for all that people talk about adhering to international law and international uh, and beefing up the UN, here's a chance. Four resolutions have been passed. Uh, the uh, requirement for Iran to fulfill its obligations under the uh, previous resolutions is from now until the 2nd of June. And I think it's right, therefore, that we reiterate to the Iranian government the uh, and, uh, review, we, we talked about reviewing and refreshing the uh, offer that we made. And I think that's the right thing to do because we have no quarrel with the Iranian people. And uh, we have no quarrel with a sustained and serious dialogue about how Iran meets its energy needs. But what is not uh, tolerable, really, is for Iran to have a uranium enrichment program but no civilian nuclear power stations to put it into. Because it doesn't take a suspicious mind to ask, why have you got a uranium enrichment program if you haven't got a civilian nuclear power program? And that's the essential uh, case that we're uh, making. But it's not a quarrel with the Iranian people. And I think that, that uh, we, we've not re released the, the contents of what we're writing to the Iranian government because we want them to address it in a serious way. Yeah? Yes, at the back. Isn't the best solution to the problems that you've outlined the world to reduce the population explosion and ultimately to stabilize the population at a lower level than at present? Over here. Uh, hello, David. Uh, my name's Ewan. I'm a Masters of Law student here at the LSE. Um, I just wanted to say when I saw the title Greenpeace, I almost thought this was going to be a speech about the reclassification of cannabis, but um, I, I mean, I, I was very happy to hear, hear the speech. That was uh, very interesting. But my question, though, is about um, standards and international treaties, and particularly, I know it's a bit different to the climate change debate, but uh, what do you think about the idea of putting environmental standards and also labor standards into the WTO treaties? Uh, this is something that's come up in the American election debate, yeah. particularly when the Democrat Party... And briefly at the back. Yeah. Uh, FCO invited the Syri Sudanese uh, official last week, uh, Alor and Mr. Mustafa Al Nafe, regarding the Arforian issue. What message had been told to them? Uh, secondly, just two days ago, Sudan Air Forces bombing uh, primary school, killing many uh, civilians in Darfur. What this message mean from Sudan government to FCO? And does FCO? Uh, Consulting therefore movement as well as my government. Are you, are you from Darfur or Sudan? Or? Yes, yes, yes. I'm from Darfur. I'm from Sudan. From Sudan Liberation Movements as well. Abdul Wahid. And you're a, you're a student here? No, I'm not a student. Uh, can I start <coughs> the question? Let me just toss in one extra one. Whilst um, I've got the microphone. You said you can't mandate um, carbon reductions, not in any straightforward way. In your, I thought in something you said in your last response to uh, a question. But one thing you can mandate is increased investment in relevant technologies, of course. Your talk this evening is very much, it seems to me, a technological optimist. You're a technological optimist. You believe the technological solutions are there. We need to get them in the right place. 
Jeff Sachs was here on Friday night, and he is a technological pessimist in the sense that he thinks the technologies aren't there, the investments in them are not substantial, and particularly in the area of carbon capture and storage, his argument was there are no viable experiments, there's no adequate investment in this technology, let alone the transfer of proven technology. In other words, on this critical front, there is not enough investment, not enough political will, and without it, many of the developing countries, of course, will not find a way to low-carbon growth. So I just wonder whether you have some reflections on that. Just on that, I mean, he's right and he's wrong. I mean, the fact that we've got... Uh, we've got 15 European demonstration projects. Show, the mere fact that they're called demonstration projects shows that this is a, a new area. However, he's wrong the, in the sense that the Norwegians have buried, I think, I think it's a billion uh, tons of, uh, um, under the, uh, in one of their former oil wells. So this is uh, without leakage. So it, it's not, and it's also the case that separately, the three aspects of carbon capture, uh, transportation and storage, have individually been done. What hasn't been done is put them together at scale. But the um, Norwegians have done the burial. So I don't think, I mean, uh, I, I mean I'm, I'm happy to be guilty to being a technological optimist, but I don't, uh, it's not just sort of, um, you know, uh, having a song in your heart because it's better than not. I mean, it's actually based on fact, I think. Um, so we, what he's right is we need, to, we need to push the political boundaries so that it gets done. Um, Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, the first question was about population explosion. I mean, my, uh, I'm not going to be an expert in this area, but my understanding is that the poverty is a huge driver of uh, population uh, growth. And actually, sustainable development is the best way in which to get to this. I don't know if it's exactly the stability that you're talking about, but it's the best way to address the issue. And it's in the poorest communities that you, hear that you see the greatest um, uh, population growth. And um, I think that, uh, so that's the way I would, uh, address it. In a way, population growth is a symptom of uh, poverty rather than uh, vice versa. On, um, on the question about uh, the WTO, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm torn about this because I think that it's clearly uh, right that the benefits of trade should be spread, not just in the sense of uh, um, geographically, but also spread uh, in terms of those who uh, labour to make the trade possible and those who actually consume. Now, is the best way to do that through mandates in the WTO, query enforcement issues, or is the best way to promote, for example, trade union rights in developing countries? Well, where's the person who asked the question? Yeah, sir. Um, so I think that, that that's my – and I think that there are a lot of treaties with a lot of lot written in them and, are, and not a lot achieved, and I think that that's so, – so that's one thing. Secondly, um, there are people in the developing world who are depending on a successful development round. And if we – I quoted some of the figures in my speech – I don't want to, over, to make the best the enemy of the good, and we don't get the development round that's actually critical to tackling poverty. So that is the other aspect to this. So um, I, think that the, I think the ends are clear. I think the short-term priority is to, make the, uh, is to complete this round. There's a medium-term priority then to get the right balance between top-down uh, regulatory mechanisms and bottom-up enforcement in respect of human rights and uh, trade union rights. Um, I mean, the question on Sudan, I mean, needs, needs, needs a serious and long answer. I met the Sudanese foreign minister and the um, presidential advisor last week when they were in London. And, uh, I mean, you, you'll be able to describe to the audience better than uh, I can the, 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 the horror of what's happened in uh, Darfur. 
what I say is really that there are three interlinked issues that need to be addressed uh, together. One is the Darfur issue, clearly. Secondly is the uh, Sudan-Chad issue, where frankly you've got governments on each side supporting rebel movements on each side. And thirdly, you've got the north-south issue within Sudan. You've got the comprehensive peace agreement, which was forged four years ago, and which, which is still there. And when I was at the Commonwealth Conference last November, I was talking to some people who were involved with it. It's, it's still there, but it needs to be strengthened. And so my message was that we've got to get those three tracks working uh, effectively and properly. That clearly means an end to bombing in uh, western Darfur. But, it, but let's also recognize that there are responsibilities on, on all sides, and that this is a an acutely complex conflict, um, not least given some of the things we've been talking about today, because it's about ethnicity, it's about land, it's also about uh, resources. And uh, I, mean, I hope that doesn't sound too pat, because the, you know, this is a conflict in which people are dying today. Uh, so I don't want to sound uh, pat about it at all, but uh, those are the three ways in which I think the three things that need to be put in place. And uh, Prime Minister's um, made clear that we're willing to put our good offices at the disposal of any of those processes or all of them. I think that's a really important initiative. Final three? Yeah. A final three. Gentlemen here on the right. Yeah. John Roberts with Platts. Um, you mentioned extending the political dimension. If you are going to address um, a fairly prolonged process in trying to reduce carbon, you can obviously apply regulatory procedures and you can apply the price mechanism. And you haven't really talked about that. And I don't think you've really talked very much about how hard it's going to be for ordinary people to accept the likelihood that they will have to spend far more for the energy that they consume in order to protect the environment. I'm not saying that this is wrong. I'm merely saying you have a very tough fight in your hands. And at some point, you're going to have to take that fight to the public. And it's a very difficult argument to get across and to win. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, we'll appear. Thank you. Um, well, you mentioned uh, a set of strategies related to the uh, technological, technological innovation. And uh, it was a very much focused, it seems to me, to, um, on, on the UK's role, actually, within the European Union. And uh, I just wonder whether uh, it was possible, actually, uh, to elaborate much more on the geostrategic dimension of it. It seems to me uh, to uh, perhaps talk about the UK's a specific uh, political strategies to deal with countries that concentrate um, actually oil and, and carbon uh, resources. How actually the UK is going to deal with countries that concentrate these resources and use them as an instrument of foreign policy. Yeah, if I may take your apologies before I start, I'd like to rewind the clock a little bit for David. Uh, Given the local elections that has taken place and the mayor election, you have lectured previously about hard and soft powers. Are you having any ideas about that any further or given up about it or something? And secondly, you also talk about investments in um, alternative energy and, and greener energies. How can we part companies from traditional correlations between oil industry and armament? given that they are producers, they are suppliers, they are consumers, and the subsequent effects. Yeah, do you understand the last part? Just say the last part. The last one is about greener energy and alternative energy. How can we part company from traditional relationship of the oil industry and armament industry? Okay. 
Right. Look, I, I'm, there are many, many people who want to ask questions. And uh, I'm, actually, David, I've rarely seen so many people uh, wanting to engage with you and to uh, raise questions. I'm sorry this has to be the – this is the last round. Um, uh, there are other uh, events this evening that David is committed to. You can also watch him, of course, on television on Newsnight uh, later on this evening. <laughs> but I, th I think this LSE audience has prepared you reasonably well. <laughs> And clearly there's more ammunition there if we only have time. Uh, but, um, David, do you want to finish off? Um, thanks. Uh, good questions. I mean, uh, I think, though, look, oil has today broken the record, $121 a barrel. And you said we're going to have to persuade people to spend more to protect the environment. Today, they're spending more to hurt their environment. They're spending more every time they go and fill up the petrol station. They're spending more every time they go to the supermarket. Uh, which in part reflects transportation costs, etc. So I think the argument is different. The argument in respect of energy efficiency is actually you're saving money, not spending it. And I think we've got to turn this round. And where I, th where I agree with you is we've got to take Nick Stern's analysis of how uh, uh, investment in climate change is cheaper than living with it from a global level down to a more specific level. And I think that is the key. But... We, we cannot say on a, on, a, on a day when oil has never been uh, more expensive that it's going to be protecting the environment and it's going to cost more. It's the current carbon dependence that ends up costing people. Um, and in a way that really, I didn't quite understand what you said before, David. I mean, just for, so I'm not misunderstood. Governments can mandate carbon reduction. And we have and we will. Uh, and we're legislating for it. The first country to do so, there'll be five-year budgets for, car for, for carbon reduction. What I was saying was I don't think it then makes sense to say okay. each region of the country should have its own, you know, in, in, in my constituency in South Shields, you should be given this much reduction to do and the, in uh, this sector of the economy, you should be given this much to do. What we've got is a national choice about how, between government, business, and individuals, you get the reduction. I mean, that relates um, to the third question. I mean, I think hard and soft power, let's leave for another time, but... Um, I, I hold to the view that in the end the business community are rational actors in this and if they're clear about the rules under which they're going to have to operate they will innovate their way to make profit under those new rules and the bigger those rules in terms of the uh, market that they cover the more effective they are and that's why the UK is part of a single market really and it's a single market for 175 million people and it has an opportunity because it's 40% of world trade to set global standards not just European standards so I mean that would be my argument I mean uh, I'm not sure I understood completely uh, I didn't understand completely the aid part of the uh, um, second question but in respect of uh, how uh, countries uh, adapt or uh, address uh, these issues I mean it's, it's complicated it, 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 immediately when it, I talked about how um, the oil producing oil production is, in, is often in state hands now, actually, I welcome sovereign wealth funds coming into this country. I think that's a good thing, not a bad thing, because I think it binds them into an international, open international system. Um, but equally, I recognize that there are regulatory and other issues that you need to address. And that's where I think the European Union becomes important for a country like ours. I'd actually like to see other parts of the world replicating the regional alliance that's been built in Europe. And if you see what's happening in... Uh, uh, parts of East Africa, if you uh, talk to some of the people who are involved in ASEAN, they're interested in actually following a European example. And 
in respect of our energy security, I think the case for a European approach is absolutely overwhelming because pick, we get picked off one by one. With, uh, I won't name any of the potential partners that we've got, but uh, in, in the way I described, uh, if we are 27, we're actually stronger. And what's interesting is that uh, the, two, the last two um, uh, what are called informal meetings of uh, European foreign ministers, and informal meeting means you wear a suit and tie but you don't have an agenda in quite the same way as a formal meeting where you wear a suit and tie and you have a very detailed agenda. But our, at our informal meetings, uh, we've spent uh, on each occasion in uh, September in uh, last year in uh, Portugal and then last month in Slovenia under the Slovenian presidency, we spent three hours on each occasion talking about effectively a common energy policy. And I think that's, I mean, that's the way of the future really. Well, it remains for me to say two things. One, to ask you, the audience, to remain seated until the Foreign Secretary has left the room. And secondly, it remains for me to thank David Miliband very much for a lecture. I think in the spirit of his father's critical vision, combining, as I said, as a, a rare combination of analytical rigor, passion for change, and so on. And I think it's that combination that is very potent, and we can only wish you well in pursuing and advancing this agenda. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.